what are we tilting this morning? What are we tilting? Juan, he's twilting, twilting, tilting Aaron Jones and Mike Davis. Yeah, we can tilt those guys. We're tilting Russ Wilson. Oh, yeah, we can tilt Russ Wilson. A Rocha is tilting Michael Thomas. Yeah, we can we can tilt Mike Thomas. What's up, guys? It's Monday. DFS lineup reviews. Had an okay day uh, across all the sites, DraftKings and uh, FanDuel, even the, the Roto-Grinder single entry series. We're going to go through that today. I'm a little upset because it could have been a better day. These are the weeks that I try to do well on, the low-scoring weeks. We were in the Game Changer, the $1,500 single entry. We talked about it on the Tilt Space last night. Osimo took that one down, contrarian player. Um, The contrarian players do well on these low-scoring weeks here. Let's pull up the spreadsheet. The spreadsheet that logs everything having to do with the bankroll challenge. This week, one interesting thing, the smaller spy was even smaller. Normally 2,222. This week, 1,666. Did min cash there. The old 1.5 min cash. I had two Kyler teams, two Kyler nuke teams, different kind of builds there that I actually tailored to the contest size. So we'll take a look at that. And then in the bigger spy, decent, decent showing. Top 8% finish here, 2.5x, 2.5x Pete. Thank you guys. Yeah, the tilt space is fun. I have a link to the week 10 version below. We did two hours yesterday, Holka, Leone, and I live sweating, tilting. Games didn't get going. Sweat didn't happen, Pete. Yeah, we thought. We thought it could have gotten going there. But again, I was not making any money until that Hail Mary there. Wow. CHM boss in the Roto Grinders chat. DK Metcalf sucks. This this is where we're at. The dude just destroying, scorching the earth for three or four weeks in a row. And he has one dead week. And now DK Metcalf sucks. Wow. You guys are fickle. Seemed like all the contests were a little smaller this week. Yeah, I have no idea if that's like part of their default algorithm, if they generally see a drop-off in interest. I know a lot for season-long people, now is the time once people come to grips that they're not making their fantasy playoffs, um, views, downloads, everything across the board is down. You know what's not down? Subs on my channel. We crossed 2,000 on Friday. Thank you, guys. If you're watching and haven't subscribed, please subscribe. It's been uh, it's been fun doing these videos this year. Oh, we're going to talk Cole Beasley, Willis. We're going to talk Cole Beasley. Let's just get into it. Let's pull up my first spy lineup here. This was this was a tough week because I felt like outside of Tua, I did end up having one Tua lineup, but I felt like you should pay up for quarterback this week, and I knew Kyler was going to be popular. And I knew Nuke was going to be popular, but I didn't see a ton of separation from any of these six or seven elite wide receiver plays. They were all just bunched up for me at ceiling projection, at ownership projection. So it was one of those, I'm just going to play who I want, and then I'm going to build from there. And I wanted to play Kyler and Nuke here. I thought kind of 
the the salary and the public sentiment on Nuke had kind of dipped because of his past two dud weeks. He'd been injured a little bit a couple weeks ago. Then last week he was drawing a ton of pass interference penalties and wasn't getting the box score numbers we had come to to enjoy from him. So I wanted to go back to the well there. And then I said, all right, uh, I'm going to just do um, a double stack. Might as well get Kirk in there, 5,700 palatable price tag. And then the big kind of differentiator, I knew if I did a Kyler double and brought it back with Diggs, that that was going to be a very popular construction. And knowing I also was going to play Mike Davis, no matter what, I, I thought that was too many chalk pieces. So I needed to save some money. I needed to get a little unique. I made the pivot to Cole Beasley. I, I didn't make that late. I, I had this lineup in. I didn't end up making late swaps on this. Um, and we can talk back through some of the late swap stuff. Obviously, in the early games, all I had was Fournette, Davis, and Hawkinson, McLaurin. So I kind of knew where I was at. Beasley ended up being a nice pivot. I think Beasley is one of those guys I wouldn't really just consider if I was just building off of my gut, you know, I'd want to pigeonhole him into the slot role, but shout out to Derek Cardi. He had Beasley projecting very well in the blitz. And I think the thing that flies under the radar with Beasley a little bit more than your typical slot wide receiver is just that he has a decent role in the red zone. They will scheme him and get him targets there, which gives him a higher ceiling than I think, you know, maybe your uh, Danny Amendola's of the world. So I thought that that ended up uh, working out obviously well. One of the things that's tilting is I had a ton of little combinations around Terry McLaurin. Um, You know, in our tilt space lineup, if I have that here, where is it right here? We did a DeAndre Swift, Terry McLaurin. That was obviously a really nice correlation on this one. I decided to mix it up. I thought I'd go Hawkinson here. Obviously, I wish. I mean, a really nice pivot here. And again, I wasn't considering this. But if I have DeAndre Swift instead of Fournette, and then I have uh, Gronk instead of Hawkinson, looking at that correlation with Mike Davis and Gronk, I mean, then this lineup is really smashing. So again, one of those things where you're correlating, you're trying to find the right puzzle pieces. Sometimes they all don't perfectly come together. That's just what happens. The Hawkinson thing... I was wondering if I should have been a little bit more sensitive to the fact that he missed Thursday's practice with the toe, then came back in limited practice on Friday. You know, he was active. Team said he was good to go. No Kenny Galladay. Past two weeks, he had 18 targets without Galladay in the lineup. Wanted to correlate with McLaurin. And man, can we talk about tilt? My version of tilt was that game not going to overtime. Because I had a ton of Swift, Hawkinson, and McLaurin across my lineups. And to miss out on overtime there because of that, what was it, a roughing the passer? And then he nails a 60-yard field goal. I mean, oh boy, the tilt. Terry McLaurin, five yards from the bonus on DK, heading into overtime. Whew. That was probably the thing I tilted the hardest yesterday. Let's check in on the chat here. Yes, Dolphins, fins up, man. They look good. They look real good. Um, please don't gloss over the Uncle Len play. No, I, I won't gloss over it. One of the things that I was looking at, and I had these four or five running backs that I was looking at in the 5,000 to 5,600 range. And I'm looking, again, strictly at ceiling projection and, and ownership. And I'm looking at all these guys relative to Duke Johnson 
and they all look like the same play on paper to me. I'm not seeing a different proposition from Gio Bernard, Leonard Fournette, DeAndre Swift, Antonio Gibson. And so I thought Duke Johnson was an easy fade at that price point and at that ownership. And I just didn't get the right pivot here. You know, again, I'm, I was trying to correlate in as in many ways as I could. Leonard Fournette had six targets last week. Cardi had him with the highest ceiling, I believe, of those guys in that bunch. I can actually pull it up here. Let me go to my stacks. This was the thing I was looking at here. See this chunk here? Fournette, Swift, Geo, Duke, Jarek, McKinnon. All in this range. 24.6 was his ceiling projection on Fournette. And I'm looking at the ownership here. Higher ceiling than Duke at a fourth of the ownership. Plus he correlated with the really chalky Mike Davis. So that was the thesis behind the Lenny Fournette play. Um, let's see here. Rojo fumbling. Uh, told my buddy to fade Rojo and he's tilting me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I do just want to pull back. This isn't a show for I told you so's and anything, but I just want to remember guys, like let's pull back last week, Dalvin cook hits and everyone's saying, how could you overthink it? How could you, you know, not play that play? Well, this week, Aaron Jones didn't hit Aaron Jones was, what was he like 40% owned in these contests? I don't know if I can find him here. He probably won't be in the top of any of these lineups. Oh, there he was. Where was he? I just saw him. I just saw him. Aaron Jones, 51%. The chalk sometimes fails, guys. Mike Davis fails, but it can fail at 4,000 much more than it can at 7,100. You couldn't win the Millie Maker with Mike Davis, but you could win small field tournaments with Mike Davis. So that's just a gentle reminder. When we do this hindsight bias thing, the results based the week that happened before, let's not forget weeks like this where the chalk flops. These are the weeks we're trying to win. Let me go back to this lineup. If there's anything else interesting here to consider, you know, I will continue to admit I am, I thought it was a tough week for late swap, but I'm also admittedly a little lazy with late swap. Um, I did have a decent amount going here. So when I know Mac Davis doesn't smash and I know TJ Hawkinson doesn't smash, I probably, I probably need to look for more leverage Maybe the Christian Kirk play, although I didn't even think he was going to be that high owned. So I don't know. I don't know if this is a leak. It was, you know, even with our tilt space lineups, we were reworking lineups. And because the ownership was so spread out, because we didn't have as many data points, we didn't know where the Keenan, the Michael Thomas ownership, all of that was going to fall, the Parker. It made it really hard to know where you were actually getting leverage unless you went super, super off the board. You know, obviously in hindsight, guys like Josh Jacobs ended up being very good leverage on some chalk. And and we knew he was going to be low owned. But once I had the shell of the double stack and the bring back, and I knew Beasley was going to be really low owned, it was it was hard to get off of that construction, especially because I had my lower owned plays go early. So not ideal. You can see how things could have come together here. Like I said, just a few little pivots. If I'm playing Swift with McLaurin 
and then I'm correlating Gronk with Mike Davis. I mean, that's a very logical pivot I could have got on based on how I like to correlate these lineups. Let me see here. Let me check in on the chat. Question for making lineup for contest sizes. Is playing more than a stack QB wide receiver and a bring back wide receiver in contest with over 100K entries bad since you have to be too perfect? Well, that's a... That's a good example of just to show you my two lineups here. So this was, you know, more of your classic double stack with a more contrarian bring back. I thought that was better for a field size this big of 5,555. Now you'll notice in the smaller spy, I ended up doing a skinny stack. I did Kyler to Hopkins and I did bring it back with the chalky digs, but then I was fitting in these other plays that I wanted. I really wanted to play Michael Thomas. I played him as a one-off. I played Miles Sanders as a one-off, and then I had Hollister and Reynolds as a cheap correlation down here. And I thought it was more viable um, in this smaller field to have the stock chalkier skinny stack. So to answer your question, I think over 100K entries, um, I don't think a, a double QB bring back is bad. I do just think it is harder to be perfect. Hopefully we get some people kind of running some data on that soon too, because I think you'll, when you review the top lineups in those big hundred K lotto contests, um, you see it both ways. Sometimes it's hitting the nine leg parlay. Sometimes it is just getting on the right game stack. Um, I can't keep up with the chat today, guys. When I got the news that Swift was starting, I really needed to reevaluate my lineup and get him in over Davis cash across the board with that play. So here's the thing. I, I saw that report too. First of all, in general, like the starting snap stuff doesn't mean anything. Kenyon Drake started for the Cardinals yesterday. He got the first snap. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. I, I do agree that it gives you a little bit vote of confidence. Hey, maybe the team's making a concerted effort to feature this guy more. Maybe he sees an uptick in, car, in targets, but I do not trust. I don't like to trust these reports, and I don't like to trust Matt Patricia. I thought DeAndre Swift was a good play in a vacuum, but... And it makes you feel better about it when you have him in your lineup. But I don't think you see that report and you go and jam him everywhere. I actually think that's a losing strategy overall if you're making lineup decisions that are that impacted by, um, I don't want to say a hearsay quote, but just a rumor, you know? So I, I don't, I wouldn't beat yourself up on not jamming DeAndre Swift because of that report. What was it uh, last week? What did we get off of when we were so tilted? What was it? It was the Rappaport report. I can't even remember it now. But we all made a a decision based on that, and we got burned. Um, Let's see here. Ian, hey, Pete, what do you think of the lineup that won the play action contest in DK? I think that'll be great to talk about. Uh, What is that? Is that the $3? Is that the $3 play action? Um, I don't want to, like, go poking around on the screen. I I can um, send me a link to it on Twitter. And uh, I'll pull it up or something like that. Um, yeah, Emily says, didn't think Detroit would actually give Swift that many touches. You know, I his his role was increasing, but I still was spooked last week. Karrion Johnson, Adrian Peterson both had three catches each. Um, oh, yeah, the CMC. That was the, that was the rap report. Yeah, that was tough. Yeah, that's that's literally that's literally what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying I learned from that mistake. We're not doing that stuff. We can't be 
um, bags blowing in the wind. Uh, so it makes you feel better. I think it's, it's good for tiebreakers and stuff, but we can't be making decisions on these reports. Um, Mike, I keep hearing about fading the chalk means you have to get less things right in your lineup, but that's simply not true. You have to get the chalk missing and get the contrarian plays too. No, that's not the case because you have two ways of winning when you aren't playing chalk. The chalk can fail or your non-chalk can outperform the chalk. There's two paths to winning. It doesn't just have to be. the ch- In the chalk, like when the chalk's expensive, we see Devontae Adams. He scores 20 DraftKings points. That's a failure at 9,000. That's a failure. You, you need 35 points from DeAndre or uh, from De- Devontae Adams at 9,000 to pay that value off. Did I make a late swap list before 1 p.m. kickoff? Um, yes. Although I will admit that my primary thing I was looking at was Chase Edmonds. If Kenyon Drake didn't go, he was a guy that I really wanted to to get into my lineup. So I was making contingencies about that. Um, you know, the other thing I was doing here in this lineup, uh, no, not this one. Where is it? Where's my one that had Raiders defense? Yes, in this one, by playing a late defense too, I wanted to give myself full flexibility if I did want to get up to Chase Edmonds and redo the defense as well. So those were some considerations I made. Ultimately, it was really hard to get a read on that ownership. It was really hard to know of the Locket, the Cup, the Metcalf, the Woods, the Keenan, the Michael Thomas, where all that ownership was going to settle in there. It was hard to make those pivots. The one thing I felt good about going into Sunday of the elite wide receivers, I felt pretty confident McLaurin was going to be the lowest owned of that group. And that ended up being true. Metcalf ended up being pretty similar. Um, is the rake in the game changer significantly less than the other contests? Yeah. The higher, the higher buy-in you go, the less the rake is. I like using the Roto Grinders Chrome extension because when you're in the lobby, um, it will overlay the rake onto those. Um, I don't know if, see this right here? Um, you see the margin? The margin is the rake. So you see like in the Millimaker next week, $20, they're taking a 15% rake. Now you look at the $100 spy, it's only a 9.9, per, uh, 9.96% rake. Oh, we go up to the juke, 986 so the higher you go up, generally, the less the rake is. And so I like using this Roto Grinders extension. It also shows you overlay. If a contest isn't going to fill, that doesn't happen a ton in NFL. These things generally fill. And then you can also see, um, oops, yeah, I'll show you here. You can also see the uh, percentage that is going to first. So here in this, I'm looking at a showdown juke. 20% goes to first. It also shows you what min cash min cash is a two X here and pays 22.12% of the field. So that's an important part of game selection too. looking at the differences in these tournaments. And you can generally tell based on how much of the field gets paid. If it's a two X min cash, those are generally pretty good structures under 10% rake, but this is a much higher buy-in tournament. Um, 
No, you're good, Mike. We uh, we're all we're all figuring it out here together. We're all learning. We're all trying to get better. Roto Grinders extension. Tell me more. Yeah, it's great. I love it. When I'm building the lineups, you can see the ownership percentages in there. You can overlay fantasy points relative to ownership. It just gives you. It's really nice when you're building to kind of quickly get feedback of like, holy cow, I have a chalky build, or holy cow, this is maybe over leveraged. I can, I can play, play something a little different. So yes, highly recommend that. Um, let's see. I feel like I'm all over the place today. Um, this other lineup I was talking about here, I'm a little, I'm a little bummed out on the Miles Sanders play. Um, I knew he would settle. I, I shout out to, to the Roto Grinders ownership projections because they had him settled right in here at about 16%. If Chase Edmonds had opened up, I think Miles Sanders ownership plummets. It did not. And I, I don't think it's a bad play there, but that play, I was hoping to get it more, you know, sub 12%. Even Josh Reynolds was projecting in the 5 to 7% range, but in these single-entry higher-buying contests, the field's just too sharp. Reynolds was a great play. Hollister, I was talking about Hollister all week, and it was a tough lesson in looking at, if you looked at the rolling like three-week stuff, right? It did seem like Hollister had emerged in that tight end group. He ran more routes than any of them. He had six targets last week, but... Again, we saw this is a three-way tight end committee with Greg Olson and Will Disley. And uh, and so it burns you. But again, on a week like this, when Rob Gronkowski is the highest scoring tight end, I really don't, I really don't mind. I think as long as you aren't, you know, as long as you're getting a cheap tight end and you're correlating it in some way, I think you're doing, I think you're doing fine. I mean, tight end is so gross. We played Gronk in one of our tilt space lineups. I didn't want to do it. I was like, this price tag, what was he, 4,700? I'm like, that's ridiculous. But it was in a Brady stack. You're getting rid of the tight end position. You're correlating it, and you're moving on. Um, Let's see here. Jonathan Carter took down your bankroll challenge tourney. Let's check it out. Let's check it out. I have this pulled up over here. Let's see what Jonathan did. All right, I have to move your your thing so we can see your full lineup. Kyler Murray, Alvin Kamara, Aaron Jones, DeAndre Hopkins, John Brown, ooh, DJ Moore, sick play. Dawson Knox, Josh Reynolds, Rams D. Okay. The Kyler to nuke, bring it back with John Brown. That was going to be popular. The play I love here the most is the DJ Moore play because he faded Mike Davis. I didn't have the stones to fade Mike Davis in contests this small. But again, one of the things I've been talking about is if you're going to fade it, like fade it in a purposeful way. And what is a way that you can actually leverage the Mike Davis ownership? Well, how about a guy on his own team at a similar price that could go off? And that was DJ Moore. So I thought that's a really good pivot. Like you're not just completely fading Mike Davis. You're saying to yourself, if Mike Davis fails, who are the people in this game that could stand to benefit. And uh, I think DJ Moore and Curtis Samuel both would have fit that bill. Um, speaking of bills, Dawson Knox, again, a punt tight end. 
He didn't do anything, but it doesn't matter. He was cheap and he correlated with this double bring back on Kyler Murray. I think he could have played Dan Arnold too with that same logic. Played Kamara and Jones as one-offs. Josh Reynolds is a one-off. And Rams D. Easy game. Nothing too fancy about this lineup. I mean, when you really look at it, it was two really nice plays. It was the Alvin Kamara who got lost in the shuffle. We saw ownership concentrating around Aaron Jones, Mike Davis, and Duke Johnson. Miles Sanders to a lesser extent. Alvin Kamara flies under the radar. 16% in a really nice spot at home in the Dome. That's a nice play. And then DJ Moore, that slight pivot off the chalk. I think that's really nice. Donnie Watson in the Roto-Grinders chat. Peter, did you ever consider getting off of Davis at that ownership with wide receivers like Beasley, Amendola, Reynolds, plays at similar price points? I did not. I did not consider getting off of Mike Davis. I mean, when I looked at his points per dollar projection on the blitz, I mean, it was it was the highest I had seen this year for a running back. It I know, I know there are factors coming into play. There are increased usage of Curtis Samuel. I mean, they're giving Rodney Smith touches. Maybe we needed to slightly adjust our priors on Mike Davis in a workhorse role. Even if you adjust for that, he's still projecting like an insane play. The crazy thing about Mike Davis to me is Mike Davis was 4,000. I think if Mike Davis was 1,500 more, 5,500, I think he still carries similar ownership. So to me, that says he is a smash play at 4,000, even at 63% here. At 4,000, getting you 8.4 points, and it doesn't even bury you. I don't think it was bad if you leveraged it smartly, you know, if you played the DJ Moore or Curtis Samuel stuff, trying to get direct leverage on it. But I don't think just outright fading it for the sake of fading it was necessarily good. We just don't get too many of these spots a year. And I know people were worried about the Tampa Bay defense, yada, yada. He also left the game for a little bit with his finger injury. And it was tilting. Don't get me wrong. It was very tilting to see Rodney Smith getting carries. But I'm going to TTP this one. I'm going to trust the process. Did not think Mike Davis was bad chalk. He should have been priced up around 6,000. He was 4,000. I'm going to take that discount. It allowed me to get in some of these higher end wide receivers that I really wanted to play this week. Yeah. Matthew says, I'm, I'm honestly shocked. He wasn't higher owned. I was too. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. You guys, if you're wondering about the confusion about the chats, the way my thing is used, I, this is streaming on both my channel and the Roto Grinders channel. And for whatever reason, the StreamYard, it only allows me to pull in comments from my channel because that's where I'm plugged in. But we're pushing it to the Roto-Grinders channel. But don't worry. I check in on both chats. I love you all. I appreciate you guys hanging out this morning. And we're working through it. We're working through these lineups. I want to pull up two. I had a decent lineup in the Roto-Grinders single entry series. This is the, um, they have this going on. They have it at three different price levels, $100.33. And $5 finished 76th out of 2000 in the hundred dollar one dink piece up at the top. We actually had pretty similar lineups. I actually had a very similar lineup to first place, but 
This was, again, I was very heavy on DeAndre Swift. Had him with Terry McLaurin here. Let's make this smaller so we can actually try to see this. Kyler Murray to Nuke Diggs did the skinny there. Correlated Everett with Lockett paying down at tight end. Ate the Mike Davis chalk. Cleveland Browns, I mean, nothing too fancy here. Finishes in 76th place, mainly because of the DeAndre Swift play. Running back was so gross that even having a, you know, a guy at that price point score 23.4 points. Like when you look at first place here, I mean, super similar lineups. Actually, no, that wasn't the lineup. Maybe it was Dink I met had a super similar lineup. Yes, Dink had a very similar lineup to me. Terry, Swift, Diggs. I wonder if Dink made this pivot to Josh Jacobs. I think Josh Jacobs was such a good pivot because, again, like I said, there was a lot of confusion or uncertainty, I should say, in that 4 p.m. slate as far as where the ownership was going to settle. But we knew one thing for certain. Josh Jacobs was going to come in very underowned. I think that was a very sharp play, uh, whether he had it in from the outset or made that pivot there. At what point is someone's ownership outweigh their potential? Like at what ownership should you auto fade an attorney? Well, I think it's all relative to the points per dollar value that they're offering, right? When you looked at projections, Mike Davis was projecting like a, you know, a quasi bell cow back at 4,000. So it's just like a thought experiment. Would you play, I'm trying to think of like another quasi bell cow back, maybe a James Conner. Would you play James Conner at 4,000? I think ultimately we just have some kind of anchoring bias based on these names. Like, oh, it's a backup. Why? I mean, he can't, he can't be a bell cow. But we've seen it. We, we saw it from Mike Davis. And I, again, I'm admitting that the role had slightly changed. But even with factoring that in, which the projection systems did, he still projected as a smash value. So to me, it's that's why I got off of Devontae Adams. Because I didn't think his projection in points per dollar at 9,000 in that game environment outweighed the risk of also having the downside in the ownership. It is, it's a, it's a mixture, right? It's a, a, the Gilcast, the art versus the science. It's more of an art. It's more of a science. You know, you look at the, the numbers, the science aspect of it, there's that. And then there's the art, you know, projecting the ownership. Is there paths to direct leverage? If you are going to fade him. Yep. And it all depends on contest selection too. Most of the contests I'm playing, the ones we were playing with in the tilt space, the juke and the game changer, those those contests are 300 people and less. Things we learned. Weather in Cleveland is bad. Fade. Green Bay weather, not so much. Also, is Valdez Scantling heating up? Yeah, Valdez Scantling is who we thought he was. He's a boom-bust receiver. That can, I don't want to say break the slate. I mean, he can. He didn't do that yesterday. Um, And it's tough, man. That win stuff is tough. Like the forecast from Kevin Roth on both the Cleveland and Green Bay games were very similar. 20 to 25 mile per hour sustained winds with gusts reaching all the way up to 50 miles per hour. It seemed like it affected the Cleveland game in Green Bay. 
Rodgers is throwing, you know, 75-yard touchdowns to MBS. Didn't seem to impact it. It's tough. It's, it's tough to know where, how to do that, how to make decisions on that. I ended up mostly fading those games. I, I, I had learned my lesson a few weeks ago with the Cleveland game with the 50 mile per hour gust. I saw that Daniel Carlson field goal kick go sideways. And I said, I want these games on the fast track where they can speed up without weather concerns. That ended up not being a perfect thesis for Green Bay. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to pick and choose which game with projected 50 mile per hour gusts isn't going to be the one that's actually impacted. I don't know. Nick, Pete, I use Claypool as a one-off like you've been advocating. Worked nice for me in the Tampa Bay stake stack fading Davis. Lineup could have done real damage, but I brought it back with Samuel instead of Moore. No, I, th- I think that was really sharp. If you were fading Davis, you did it with a Tampa Bay stack and used a guy who is literally direct leverage on him. Samuel stealing carries in the red zone from Mike Davis. You didn't land on more, but I think the thought process there is solid. And Claypool, yeah. You know, we love to correlate. It eliminates the number of things we have to get right. But Claypool has shown he has a massive ceiling. He can get there by himself because they're using him in the red zone. They're, you know, manufacturing these rushing packages for him. He had 13 targets last week. I think I saw... Sai has nine touchdowns in nine career games. I mean, these rookies, man, these rookie wide receivers are absolutely exploding down the stretch here. I think we're going to see more of it. Michael Pittman. I think we have big games coming from Denzel Mims. I think we're going to get big games from Jalen Rager. Brandon Ayuk we saw yesterday. These, these dudes are legit. Let's see here. Yeah, the rep did have a really nice block on that for sure. Also, the other highlight in that game, Keelan Cole, the okie doke on the punter, J.K. Scott. Oh, man. Tough scene for J.K. Scott getting okie doked out of his cleats by Keelan Cole on the punt return. Mark Derrick in the Roto-Grinders chat is slant boy toast. Man, that was frustrating having him. I pull up our, this was our lineup uh, that Holka and Leone had in the game changer, $1,500, 50K to first, 154.2. We were never catching Osimo here at 182. He, he pulled away, but man, we just needed anything from Michael Thomas and we could have moved up nicely here. Is Michael Thomas toast? I'll tell you one thing. I don't think Jameis Winston is good for Michael Thomas. I don't think he's the stylistic fit we want. We want the slants, the precision routes, the ball coming out, you know, seven yards off the line of scrimmage from Drew Brees, 10 catches, hits the bonus, gets a slant into the end zone, yada, yada, bada boom. James Winston, I don't think Jameis Winston is quite known for the precision accuracy we'd like to see with a guy like Michael Thomas. So I think I saw his price has only gone down 100 to 7,300. They get the Falcons this week. We'll have to see where ownership shakes out on that. The price is right. Um, again, I don't I don't have an opinion on it right now. It'll be dependent on ownership. If Michael Thomas is sub 10% at 7,300 against the Falcons, 
I will probably have some Michael Thomas. He didn't even look, I mean, Jameis Winston had, he was looking for him multiple times. He had a couple balls that sailed over his head that got tipped thrown behind him. So it wasn't like Michael Thomas was just completely phased out. And then also Alvin Kamara ended up getting the three touchdowns. So I'm not, I'm not ready to say he's toast. Basically when I think of, my idea is, if, is a guy toast is, would I consider playing him next week? Do I feel sick to my stomach thinking about playing a guy? I don't feel sick to my stomach thinking about playing Michael Thomas at low ownership next week. Yeah, let's pull up. Uh, this was the winning roster here. Um, Josh Allen, double stack to Diggs and Beasley. Beasley ended up being the difference maker. One really interesting thing here, no bring back on this lineup. And then again, correlated Parker and Henry ate the Davis chalk, but then got on Kamara and Claypool. Two really nice one-offs. 182.16. What would that have done in the big spy? Would have been pretty nice. 182.16 would have finished eighth place in the big spy as well. Eighth place for... 4,000. So a very nice lineup there. As we wind down here too, I wanted to recommend something. So Alan uh, Lem over at Roto Grinders, he posted this article last night, um, the mental side of DFS. And I thought it was a very, very good read. I'm actually going to paste it in the chat right now. Um, Let's see if this, uh, it won't let me post it in the Roto Grinders chat, but uh, I will post it in the comments or you can hit me up here. Um, but it's just a very good post about kind of the the ups and downs that we have as GPP tournament players in DFS. And it was just, um, it was comforting to know that other people go through this, that when you're really trying to build the best possible lineups, that also means you're going to lose a lot of weeks. And that takes a psychological toll. Um, There was a line in here that I also wanted to highlight. Um, See if I can find it here because I thought it was a really good line. This here, here it is to put this in DFS terms. You could be wrong 49 of 50 nights, but when you are right that one night, it should more than make up for those 49 losing nights. The problem is that for many of us, Being wrong 49 to 50 nights is mentally taxing. So sometimes we find more comfort in making safer choices in our DFS play that minimize those losing nights in exchange for tournament winning upside. Or said more simply, sometimes we find more comfort in min caching more often so we don't have to feel the sting of losing. I fall into this trap often. I thought this was so well put. And it, it's applicable to both like mental health and stuff, but also just being a good GPP player. I did this constantly last year. I was a bad DFS player. I would come on here and do these streams. I'd eat shit week after week. I felt myself tightening up, making more conservative choices. So I didn't have to publicly admit I was eating shit in these contests. But then you're playing suboptimally. And I think, you know, I've been talking about this lately too, but If you can't, if you are playing these GPP tournaments to win first and you can't stomach losing 49 to 50 nights, I know that sounds extreme, but if you can't stomach that, you're probably playing stakes that are too high 
or you're being too conservative with your lineups and not giving yourself a chance to win. I'm I'm fully prepared now to come on these shows and have you guys make fun of my lineups for bricking out. I don't care. I will lose every week. I will have people in the chat tell me I'm trash because I've gotten near last place. I don't care. But I've come to peace with that. But I understand that it's hard to come to peace with that. And uh, so I recommend reading this article from Alan because it is legitimately taxing and exhausting. It's so fun. But man, I feel that that pit my stomach too after slates where it goes bad. And you're just like, man, this isn't fun. What am I doing? So make sure that you're taking care of your mental health while doing this, because this is supposed to be fun. But if the the mental health downsides outweigh the, the fun and the action, then you need to pull back. So I just wanted to highlight that. I thought that was an important thing and a really good read by Alan there. Um, let's see. When I first started DFS, I was scared of losing money. I fortunately build a bankroll enough that feeling of losing money while knowing that I'm making the correct decisions gives me solace for sure. And it also goes back to that thing about the contest selection. If I play the Millie maker lineup or the Millie maker contest every week, and that's all I play, I can't live and die by the results in the Millie. It's, it's a lotto. I don't, so you have to set your expectations relative to the contest. That's why I like playing in these smaller field contests because I know I'm not going to have to go 50 slates before having a decent score. Let's see here. Oh, Brandon, why are all the higher entry price contests besides the Millie scoring low points like 175? Well, there's two reasons. One, it was a lower scoring week that we just didn't see a ton of points. I mean, Rob Gronkowski was the highest scoring tight end. What did he have? 14 points. We didn't have any of the 45 point, 50 point games from running backs. It was just a lower scoring week. And then when the field is smaller, the winning scores are going to generally be smaller. There's less people with a chance to get a high score. I mean, let's look at the bankroll challenge. This is a 200 person league. Jonathan Carter, shout out Jonathan Carter in the chat earlier, 175.7. Let's see what it took to win the big spy. 50,000 people, it took 190. The smaller contests are generally going to have a smaller threshold to winning. What's up, Jordan? People know about 100 well-known names in DFS who they see at the top of the leaderboards, but they don't realize that when one wins, 99 of the others lost. It gives the illusion that they always win, for sure. I remember this too with Ricky D. Ricky D, friend of the Swole cast, great DFS player, won a million dollars on one of the Monday short slates earlier this year. I think it was when there was the KC Buffalo doubleheader that night. But I also remember Ricky D posting his graph from tournaments last year in the fall. I think it had like a $600,000 downswing on it. It might've been even more. He plays absurd stakes. There's the yin and the yang to this stuff. And that's why I like, I don't mind rolling around in my own shit on a Monday because it's a good reminder. It's not just all hunky-dory. It's not all winning tournaments. 
To win tournaments, you must be willing to lose. And I I think that's a good point too. I mean, screenshots are fun. We should all celebrate it. But that's why I think it's also important to post the losing graphs. Talk about the ups and downs. Roll around in a lineup that completely bricked. Because that happens too. That is a reality about things that I think Alan hit on really well. Even as Jordan mentions, for the best of the best. The reason they're the best is probably because of good bankroll management. They are able to remain solvent. And also, they don't get conservative. They're willing to keep going for first week after week after week. Matt, I don't know what your lineup is, man. What's your lineup? I do have to... Uh, oh, there you are, Matt. We'll look at your Matt, your lineup and then we'll get out of here. Aaron Rodgers, 0.5% to Devontae Adams. I dig it. I dig it. Any bring back here? Yep, bring it back with Chark at 1%. Ooh, Mercedes Lewis. It doesn't matter. The Adam Troutman bagel week. If you're correlating and it's cheap, who cares? DeAndre Swift, Josh Jacobs, the Swift-McLaurin correlation. I love that. Reynolds as a cheap one-off. Josh Jacobs correlated with the Raiders D. Easy game. Nice lineup, Matt. Nice lineup. By the way... I have the the contest for week 11 is up. The contest is up. It's in on my YouTube channel. It's the pinned comment. 200 people. Lots of good peeps. We'll review the lineup every Monday. It filled last week by, I think, Friday or Saturday. I need to get, who's my, who's my contact at DraftKings? I feel like the Pete Bankroll Show needs a rake-free DraftKings league. We need it. Let's all start. Let's ask DK Assist if we can get that because this is already filling up at 200. We need a rake free. What do we? What do we need? Like a 500 person rake free three max. Make it happen, DraftKings. After all I've done for you. I got some good single digits rock star lineups this week. Nice work, fanful. Yeah, I was with Jordan. The um the off the wall stack I did was the the two stack. That one uh that one was nice. I was listening to uh the Jordan does the advanced analytics show. Uh they talk about the correlations there. Parker and Gasecki having uh one of the nicer correlations, and also Jakeem Grant was super cheap. Jakeem Grant was popping in the blitz. It didn't quite get there, but I think that that was the game to pivot to off of the, um, the super chalky ones. I play in the casual contest and I'm about as sharp as a beach ball. No way, Emily, you're in here on a Monday morning reviewing our process, getting better. You are much sharper than a beach ball. Yeah, DraftKings told the Swolecast to uh, ask around a tent pull event for, and they would give us a listener league. I need that Pat Mayo. I need that weekly three max rake free. All right, guys, this has been fun. Every Monday morning, 10 a.m., we will review. 
the highs, the lows, you know, checking back on the challenge, you know, nice week. I, I don't get as excited about these min caches. Um, to me, it's like a, it's a reminder that I was close to, to cracking the top, but not close enough. But bankroll challenge gets back. We're at 650, down 350 on the year. Looking forward to next week. We'll take some time off tomorrow, mental health break tomorrow, and regroup for week 11. So thank you guys for coming, hang out, hit the subscribe button. If you're not, hit the like button, hop in the Discord channels, both Roto Grinders Premium Discord and my Discord, great places to converse. For my Discord, you can check the show notes down below. And have a great Monday, everybody. We'll see you guys on Friday for the Build Show. I, I'm having James McCool on. That's Blender's podcasting uh, or uh, masterclass course, Podcaster in Crime, James McCool. We will talk to him on Friday about DFS tournament strategy. I am rambling. I am rambling. Have a good day, guys.